This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, Crystal Hopkins returns to discuss the results of the IATSE ratification vote revealed on November 15th. The three-year contract or basic agreement with studios and streaming services squeaked by because of a delicate voting system many compare to the Electoral College. 50.4% of the popular vote rejected the deal, but the agreement was ratified with 256 delegates voting yes and 88 voting no. That's left a lot of hard feelings and mounting criticism of President Matthew Loeb's leadership of the union. Just ahead of the vote, Crystal Hopkins stepped down as president of Local 871, citing frustration over the ratification process. We'll get the story of the deal, what lay behind it, and Crystal's reasons for stepping down. We then continue our look at the state of labor in the United States with UCSB labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein. Nelson has an article in the Washington Post and another in Dissent that address the current enormous churn in the workplace. Some call it the big quit, others a strike wave. In the wake of the pandemic, we're seeing record numbers of workers quitting their jobs, but also rising labor militancy, increasing wages, and accelerating inflation, while the Democrats are trying to hold on to their razor-thin majorities by passing the infrastructure and build back better bills with their big increases in spending. The employer response is to pay more, but remain vigorously anti-union, and getting millions of new workers unionized is what's required. Recalling the words of Joe Hill just before he was executed in 1915, don't mourn, organize. We get Nelson's analysis of labor and more when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we are so fortunate. We have a big show today on labor, beginning with the news on the ratification of the contentious contract of IATSE workers. They narrowly voted for the contract, and we're very fortunate to have Crystal Hopkins back with us. She's an art department coordinator and the former president of IATSE Local 871, which represents script supervisors, art department coordinators, production accountants, and more. And she's led the union since 2019 and served before that as an interim business representative. And we spoke to Crystal last, just a month ago, unbelievably, on the eve of the October 18th deadline for the strike vote. That vote had a historic turnout and the strike was barely averted. Members were roiled over how little the deal they thought address their basic grievances about long workdays and not enough rest time between shifts. And there were other issues like pensions and other things. The process has been contentious and the membership is deeply divided. And they turned to Facebook and Instagram pages to voice their grievances in advance of the strike vote. And since then, on the reasons they plan to vote either for or against the agreement. The ratification vote was held on November 12th, and the results were revealed on November 15th. The three-year contract, or the basic agreement, with studios and streaming services squeaked by thanks to a delicate voting system, many compared to the Electoral College. 50.4% 
of the popular vote rejected the deal, but the agreement was ratified with 256 delegates voting yes and 88 voting no. We're going to discuss that. And that left a lot of hard feelings, and there's mounting criticism of President Matthew Loeb's leadership of the union. Now, just ahead of the vote, our guest Crystal Hopkins stepped down as president of Local 871, citing frustration over the ratification process. We're going to get the story of the deal, what lay behind it, and Crystal's reasons for stepping down. And there's an article that came out in the Hollywood Reporter that describes some of the reasons that Crystal stepped down, but we'll get it. First, welcome back to the show, Crystal Hopkins. Thanks so much for having me. I guess, you know, there's just so much to talk about. So maybe we could begin, though, before we talk about what you did, let's just say how you see that vote. What did a yes vote say? What did a no vote say? And what did the agreement agree to? Yeah, so I think obviously it was a a very evenly divided sort of grouping of the yes and the no's. It was so close with the actual vote, the one-to-one vote, that I think first, the term deeply divided is what it is on the surface, right? We are literally looking split directly in half. What I want to say about that, though, is that I'm, I'm not looking at it as deeply divided. I'm looking at it as that our voice as labor is actually becoming more united in what the needs of the workers are. I think the no vote group, I think what their vote says basically is things have to change. Things have to change. And this idea of the progression of bargaining, which is common and is the way that a lot of bargaining works and historically is the way that the IATSE bargaining has worked where you get a concept in a contract and then you continue to build on it. You continue to build on it. And that takes the work of the membership and the leadership kind of working together to do that contract to contract. And I think the the yes vote understands that very well. And I think that the yes vote also was coming from a place. What I've heard from a lot of the yes vote is that when faced with a decision of conflict within themselves, they erred on the side of caution. Mm. And, you know, I'm not personally upset with that. I don't blame them. I'm not angry. I think that it's it's a more academic view of negotiating rather than a sort of worker movement, all power kind <laughs> of view. And I really think that that's where the divide was. It was just between people who are willing to work at it in one way versus work at it in another way. And I want to make very clear that for IATSE, and in my understanding, which I'm not largely educated about other areas of labor, I am in IATSE, it's where I put my focus, but this was a good contract. It's a good contract. We got a lot of movement and we got a lot of gains and and particularly for my local 871, you know, we had that giant outsized increase in our rates to try to move the needle of these very underpaid but very skilled workers in the right direction. And those are all really good things. And they should have been in the contract. And I'm glad that we got them. But at the end of the day, I think the the shift in, in our culture in general, I think the sort of sea change of labor right now 
where labor is finding their voice again. And we're kind of having this renaissance moment of, of the power that labor has for the people who are solidly in that camp. This just wasn't enough. This didn't cut it. We could have done more through that lens. That's the resounding sort of. And I understand Crystal Hopkins, uh, Local 871 voted for the contract. I talked to some people, too, and they basically said the same thing you did, that, you know, they were in sympathy with the no votes. They wanted more. But for one reason or another, they decided at the last second to vote for the contract. But I think that part of what is leaving such a bitter taste in so many mouths is that the no voters concerns let's put it this way, that a majority no vote turned into a yes on the contract. And maybe before we move ahead, you could just explain that, because I think a lot of people, you know, frustrated with politics in general and feeling part after so many months in the pandemic and all of the changes uh, with labor surging everywhere, you know, are feeling that. So uh, frustration that the old rules don't sit with the new conditions. Yeah. And you were correct in the assessment of it's sort of an electoral college, right? We we have delegates. Each local has one delegate per 100 members at the last assessment of how many members each local represents. And the majority vote, the 50% plus one vote goes 100% in that direction. So even where you have these super thin margins, all the delegates their vote counts as the yes or the no, depending on on what the 50% plus one of each local set. So then those all go into a pool and that's where you get the spread of the delegates can ratify this contract. And that's how the system works and that's how it's set up. That's how the strike authorization vote worked. That is just our voting system. Obviously the frustration with this mirrors the frustration with this kind of voting system overall. It very much mirrors our electoral college Mm -hmm. uh, nationally and deserves criticism. In my opinion, that that system deserves criticism in all the places that it lives. Since we last spoke on this issue, one of the key grievances was about the rest periods and the long working days. And that seemed to be like in most of the stories of IATSE workers that we read on Instagram and Facebook, that that was it. They were talking about how unsafe conditions were on the sets because there were 12 and 14 hour work days. And then you had to drive one or two hours home. And then there wasn't enough turnaround to get a proper rest or over the weekend. And that seems to be one of the issues that people are least satisfied with because the turnaround that they were granted still doesn't seem to be enough to rest. And I wondered, because since that time, we saw the tragic consequences of these of what happens when you have to cut corners and have long work days in the set of rust where Alec Baldwin was handed a prop that he thought you know, was a fake gun with fake bullets or no bullets, turned out not to be the case. And the cinematographer and and another person on the set, she was killed and he was wounded in a tragic, really tragic situation. I wondered if that had any impact on the vote or on the members' grievances. How did that roll out in your local, let's say? Yeah, I think anecdotally it does. You know, again, there's this sort of this slight disconnect, right? That was, I think, the general overview of safety and safe conditions and that accident very much falls in that category of where 
corners are cut or things aren't viewed and scheduled and planned and managed through the lens of safety, they're viewed and scheduled and planned and managed through the lens of the bottom line. And let's Mm -hmm. get this done at whatever cost. And to be frank, some costs are too high. The life of a human being is too high of a cost. Mm -hmm. Now, the turnaround and the safety under the basic agreement really wouldn't have played so much, I think, into that particular tragedy. That tragedy was unprofessional behavior, inexperience, or people that just overlooked the safety of a situation. Um, And it was actually shooting under a different contract anyway. It wasn't under the basic agreement. But all that said, this sort of catch-all safety bucket definitely comes into play. And yes, the 10-hour turnaround did improve conditions for a lot of people. There are still carve-outs to that 10-hour turnaround, which I think became a major bone of contention. It was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 10 hours is like, first of all, not enough. Mm. Um, And secondly, there are still people who don't get it. So the combination of sort of the little moments in this tentative agreement that just turned out to be not enough. And I do believe, and I will continue to say that the goalposts in May, when we started negotiating, were different and in a different place than the member erected goalposts that we had by the time we got to the strike authorization vote. There were two different games happening on this court, for lack of a better analogy, right? That people were playing, they were not on the same team. And not even intentionally, and and there's nothing really to be done about it at this point, other than we've got to rectify this and we've got to really look at our structure and start understanding that a labor union is intended to be a bottom-up organization. It is should not be a top-down organization. And when when the bottom starts to say something, it is or should be the intention of the people at the top to stop and listen. I want to come in on that, Crystal Hopkins, and before we talk about the reasons that you stepped down, there's just a lot of criticism of Matthew Loeb's leadership. He's the overall leader of IATSE, and a lot of people think, say, well, he's in New York, and most of this you know, was concentrated on the West Coast, and he doesn't see the centrality of the issue that over half of the membership voted no on just what you were describing, Crystal. That's the long hours and the short breaks between workdays, and it's not just about whether or not this is, you know, a slave driver operation, but that it's unsafe. And now we have a terrible example of how unsafe it is. And then there was an article in Variety that says people in L.A. think Loeb's out of touch. So, you know, who does he represent and who doesn't he represent? And and how do you see that that criticism? You just said this should be a bottom up uh, union and not a top down one. Yeah, I believe that to be true of all unions. Um, just just for clarity's sake, I am not pointing directly at our union and, and singling them out in this issue. What I will say is there seems to be a misunderstanding sometimes when we are in our own space and we are dealing with our own issues of what exactly IATSE is and who IATSE represents. Our organization is way larger than the film and television sector. It's trade shows, it's live theater, any anything entertainment sort of, you know, IATSE has a hand in. So 
President Loeb has a huge job and that huge job covers more than just the 13 locals in Hollywood. It covers more than just the film and entertainment business. And it may be true that he doesn't quite understand or know the conditions that we're all working under right now. It is the job of the leadership of the locals and it is the job of the members to make people aware of that. I will say that, you know, Everything here is a learning moment. Everything here is a change in in labor and in our organization. And our job now, in my opinion, is not burn the castle down, right? Our job here, and probably, in my opinion, the best way to move forward is for everybody to take take a beat. We have to get together. We have to stay organized. We have to stay at least disorganized. And get more and more organized every day to demand what's needed in a bottom up mentality and start moving in that direction. Because I don't know how else people who don't work in our craft and who don't work in our industry are supposed to know if we don't tell them. And we, the members started telling them and the members between May and October, and then between October and November, we're very loudly telling them things. The machine was already in motion at that time. And this is all kind of new. This is all kind of new for IATSE to have this much involvement. We are historically a 20% or less involved union as far as the membership goes. And I am so hopeful and excited that not only the country in general and labor in general is moving in this direction, but that my union which I am so proud of and I love so deeply is also moving in this direction where we are going to really change our organization from the bottom and make it better, make it a, you know, a better um, environment for everybody who comes after us. All right. Well, so that leads us Crystal Hopkins to the breaking news that on the eve of the vote to ratify the contract, you stepped down as president of Local 871. And I want to get for our listeners here some of the reasons that you stepped down. And, you know, you talk about it as how difficult it was. And I should alert people to this article that talks about the reasons that you did, that you did decide to step down. But let's hear it from you. What happened and and why do you see the reasons that you could no longer lead this local? Yeah, primarily I stepped down for a lot of personal reasons. There became a lot of things have happened in my life in the last two weeks and two or three weeks. I don't, I don't know. Time's sort of weird right now, but primarily it was driven by personal reasons. I knew that I had a limited time left. I was not running again. Our vice president, Marissa Shipley is running unopposed and she was going to be stepping into that position anyway. And then, you know, we got closer as we got closer and closer and closer to the vote. And I knew that it was going to ratify. Like, I just, I just knew that we were going to, that it was going to happen. I didn't know that it was going to be by such a slim margin, but I very much had a strong feeling that this, this is the way it was going to go. And coupled with my personal reasons, which were the driving factor originally, and then looking at here comes this weekend. And at the end of this weekend, we need to come out strong. We need to come out triumphant. We need to come out like, 
you know, there's there's sort of an expectation of how this is going to be handled by the leadership of locals. And I found myself at war with myself regarding having to carry that and lead Local 871 through that ratification and through the end of the year in sort of a triumphant way when everything that I knew to be true was dictating myself morally, ethically, everything that that was not the proper stance to take for me. My personal stance was was not that. We we left the negotiating room and it was, you know, 871 can agree to this living wage piece 100%. This is what my negotiating committee had had agreed was going to be where we landed if we needed to land somewhere and it was okay. And I listened to all the other locals tell me that all the pieces that sort of were most important to their membership were also okay. And then I get out into the world after this and I can see that those goalposts had changed and that it wasn't okay. And for me, solidarity means something very specific. And for me, having just come through a huge years long battle, asking for solidarity for our issue at every turn, I could not in good conscience look at all of the rest of the members of IATSE and say, thank you so much for your solidarity. I don't have any back for you. Mm. Can I just interrupt for one second? Because in one of the uh, statements, you, you talk about this and you said you have these strong principles of unionism and solidarity, but you couldn't claim the agreement as a victory when so many union members were crying out that they needed more and that the agreement wasn't fixing the problems that they were willing, that they were willing to go to the lengths of actually going on strike to fix. So could you just address that issue? Yeah. So, so one of the primary things about that is the turnaround time. The 10 hours was not, you know, although that is what we went into negotiations asking for the 10 hours by October and November was no longer good enough for the membership. And I had people day after day all throughout this process leading up to this asking me, are we going to go on strike? I just need a break. I can't do this anymore. You know, there are people wanting to leave the industry because you don't sleep because you're aging yourself and burning out and doing dangerous things, you know, like dangerous things on a daily basis for this job. And so that was a, that was a big one for me was the solidarity with the people who said 10 hours is not enough for me. You know, that doesn't primarily affect my craft. I, I work in, I'm not tied to the set. I'm not tied to the camera. I can work a 10 hour day or a 12 hour day regularly and, and get enough time to go home and rest and whatever. It's still too many hours. Nobody should be working more than eight hours a day. Hello, Ian. but you know, that's not our industry and we're very aware of that. So that was, that was a big one for me was that turnaround issue and understanding that there are crafts that even if the camera shoots 10 hours a day, they still have a 12 or a 14 hour day. And there's really no getting around that. And it's something that needs to be addressed. The solidarity and those issues for me became more important to uphold than my own 
it's it's really hard. It's a weird thing to talk about because it's not that it's more important, right? It's it's there is an importance there that has to be recognized. And even though my members did gain a lot, truly historic gains, truly historic gains. That's not what a union is. It's not that I got mine. That's not what it is. So it became a very heavy burden. And it wasn't something that I was going to be able to hold my tongue about or fake my way through. And I got increasingly more questions. I got increasingly more inquiries and press and whatever, everything, you know, from members, from everything about, no, where do you really stand on this? What is your truth about this? Mm. We want to know. Well, I was no longer the appropriate person to be leading 871 in that moment. It's, it's such a principal point of position that you took, Crystal Hopkins, and I completely understand it. So final question, as we're running out of time, is what do you see now? How do you move forward? What do members feel? And, you know, do you see yourself now as a rank and file, I guess, you know, really strong struggle element, as we used to say? So big questions. Yeah, and I I know we're running out of time, so I'll try to keep it brief. But first, I've always seen myself as a rank and file member. I have never stopped working in craft. And as a president of my local, it's not a paid position. It's a volunteer position. And and working in the fields has never not happened. So I do see myself as a rank and file member. I see myself as somebody who has a unique perspective now and can possibly help in in whatever the membership decides is the next most important thing we need to work on. I, I just have some unique perspective. So, you know, I'm blessed to have it and I'm lucky to have it. And I'm excited to be able to do the work as a rank and file member. To be honest, I've done my best work as a rank and file member, in my opinion. It's more membership driven. It's not organizationally driven. There is a, a freedom in, in being a rank and file member that leadership does not have. and. Not that that's wrong. It's for very good reasons, but that's just the truth of it. So I see myself moving forward with the membership, looking to keep the unity and to keep the solidarity. Everybody needs a moment, right? This is, there is grief here. There is trauma here and people are going to need time to get through that. My hope is that we don't turn against each other and that we can continue to build those bridges and and listen to each other and find the find the solution. There's always a solution to be found if we can all without, you know, without attacking, without without killing each other in the process, listen to each other and find find the the common grounds and find the ways to work the issues so that it really is better for everybody. And it's going to take members understanding that everybody's issues are different and everybody's working conditions are different. I think we've come a really long way in a very short amount of time on that. And that to me is hopeful. That to me is where, where the work needs to be done right now and how we're going to move forward. We just have to stay together and we have to hold the leadership accountable and we have to make ourselves known, make our wants and our needs known. And allow them the space to appropriately handle that. It sounds very much, Crystal Hopkins, like you're saying, not only do you have to restructure the industry to make conditions much better for the workers who make that industry possible, 
but also the structure of the union and its vote. So it's a big, tall order. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. But, you know, that's, that's what, what you're we there do. For. That's what we do. <laughs> that's what a labor union is. You know, there's always work to be done. You can always make it better. Thank you so much. And that's such a good place to end it. I want to thank you for what you've been doing, Crystal Hopkins, and for bringing us the story right here on this program. Crystal is a former president of IATSE Local 871. She just stepped down less than a week ago before the ratification vote on the contentious agreement. That's what we've been talking about. And she's also now Art, as she always has been, Art Department Coordinator. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Nelson Lichtenstein back with us. He's a labor historian at UCSB, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy and writes about American political economy as well as labor altogether and the automotive industry, Walmart, and his books include famously a biography of the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and then State of the Union, a Century of American Labor, which I still think is relevant, even if it was in the 20th century and we're in the 21st. But Nelson has done a lot of work on Walmart and the sort of template for capitalism that we see now that was begun by Walmart. And his latest book is called Capitalism Contested, The New Deal and Its Legacy. It came out in 2020 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And Nelson has two articles out in the last week, and we're going to talk about that in the state of the labor movement. One of them in the Washington Post is called, Are We Witnessing a General Strike in Our Own Time? And the other one is in Dissent Magazine that says, Is This a Strike Wave? Well, we've been doing a lot of programming on, you know, whether or not Striketober represents the sort of resurgence of the labor movement. And so it's perfect to have Nelson to talk today about the state of the labor movement. And it's obviously a pivotal time for working people. We've been witnessing a series of big and sometimes very big, but somewhat contradictory developments. So we have simultaneously on the one hand, the big quit. We talked about that last week on this show. And then also a labor shortage, of course, one goes with the other. And the Democrats have offered two very big pieces of legislation, first the infrastructure bill and now social welfare legislation under the BVB, the Build Back better uh, legislation that has now gone through Congress but has not yet come to a vote in the Senate. That's contentious. And both of them together offer major improvements in living standards. And then on the other hand, there's been not just increasing inflation, but a lot of hysteria over it. And with prices rising faster than in decades, and then a series of Republican victories and Democratic defeats, including Virginia and New Jersey, And even, I guess you could say, the exoneration of Kyle Rittenhouse, although that's not a labor issue per se. And so Nelson's been writing about these and other issues for decades. So Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Glad to be here. Thank you. And so maybe we should just start with your overall take 
on the balance of forces, as we used to say, um, you know, on the surface, it looks like workers are exerting new greater leverage. There's a lot of strikes. There's a lot of sense of solidarity and the need to organize. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have this tight labor market and people are saying, well, wait, can workers get a better deal without having unions? And uh, you have the big quit. So there's a lot there to talk about. What's your take on the strengthened position of workers in this new world? Well, on the one hand, we are in a remarkable moment, a very favorable moment in terms of uh, working class power, at least as, as you would measure it. Well, in, in, as we measure for the last century, that is tight labor market. Um, wages are going up. That's sort of the kind of you know mechanical economic thing. I think beyond that, I'm sure you've talked about it on this show, the sense of, of really uh, moral righteousness with which tens of millions of frontline workers properly feel uh, given the, the recent the crisis of the pandemic, the danger of their work, and the rising inequality, etc. So, I mean, I, I, all social movements, of course, when they are on the offensive and the ascendant, it's not just that the sort of the you know calculate the political this and that. There is a sense that they represent the future of the of the country of the world, the civil rights movement. Uh, women's movement, you know, and and at various moments of the labor movement. So, I mean, that's a powerful sense, and and, and you can see that all up and down the the class hierarchy, from the people who work in in blue collar, bottom of blue collar, to and and I, I don't say that any disparaging way, all sorts of academics and part time academics and professionals and, and at Silicon Valley. So that's that's there. Now that's in one sense remarkably favorable moment. And then the president puts forth, um, and I think he's doing this more than Obama or Clinton did, you know, every so often he throws in a, a shout out to the unions, which is, you know, there. Now, having said that, what's also true at the very same moment is that corporations of uh, capital is just determined not to allow or, or how should I put it, retreat in terms of the institutionalization of this moment, i.e. unions. <laughs> that is, consciousness comes and goes. Uh, it always does. What an institution does, whether it's a law, you know, or whether it's an um, uh, organization, it crystallizes it and institutionalizes it so that it, the, the power is sort of fixed even when consciousness changes. Well, you know, you look at, look at Amazon, you look at Starbucks, you look at these companies. I mean, they are absolutely determined. They'll, they'll give higher wages. They'll give scholarships, you know, to the workers. They do all sorts of things. But they, are, they remain just as intransigent as ever on the question of the institutionalization of the power that workers now have, you know, for this moment, which is one reason why it's not quite a strike wave. I, I, I've said that, that, it, that it's where workers are striking and winning. They have unions. Some of those unions were founded 100 years ago. I mean, you know, the um, John Deere, the UAW, well, 80, 85 years ago, others 40 years ago or something. So you need an organization. And, and frankly, I don't care what kind of organization it is. I mean, in my field, we used to have lots of debates. Oh, a conservative union, a radical union. Or this. I mean, frankly, that pales into, into insignificance in terms of just having an organization, having a, you know, which, a collective structure. And we need that. And, and so in the past, at, at various moments, um, social movements, labor movement, other social movements have created institutions out of their you know, forward. And, and right now, that's the agenda on the agenda. And, and capital is 
determined not to let that happen. So we are in a moment of um, labor upsurge. Let's let's call it that. Also, it's it's also fragile and it's also not a sure thing. You know, it's interesting, uh, Nelson, because there's this sense of confidence too, and maybe it's come out. You know, there's also a sense, you know, because we'll get into it on the big quit that workers really are questioning the kinds of conditions that they've had to work under. And that's, you know, you just mentioned that one of the biggest obstacles that they can get better wages and they can get scholarships and other sorts of things. But as you just said, the institutionalization of power is there. But there's also the issue of and this was a big deal for the IATSE contract is whether or not they're going to change the model of work. And that's that's really critical to what's happening today. You know, and in, in, in the film industry, I think they talk about are you going to have the French model, the French conditions where they actually do have no more than a what, eight or 10 hour workday right. um, or the American model where they work you as much as they can. And so there, that's one big, huge part about it. And and then on the other hand, we have, as you just said, all of these strikes that are going on that don't quite amount. I think one of your articles says it's not like the 1940s. But it's definitely not the 1940s, but it's really some of the biggest strike waves we've seen, what, since the 80s, perhaps. You can correct me on that. So you have the John Deere workers, you have the nurses, you have Kellogg, you have Starbucks, you have HelloFresh and the Heaven Hill Distillery in Kentucky, and of course, the IATSE agreement. So it's not a strike wave, but it's, but it's really important because it's, I guess, muscle flexing, perhaps, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then about maybe we should just talk a little bit about the John Deere strike. And there, of course, we have 10,000 workers out. Can you maybe say a little bit about that strike and the contract issues that are under contention? Well, Leah, let me tell you, it's the first thing you, you mentioned. Well, this fits in with the John Deere capital and business. They are very clever and endlessly innovative <laughs> in ways to win the battle against labor. And one of the ways that in recent years, we're all aware of this, is is sort of the the division of the workforce in terms of fissuring, i.e. creating subcontractors or creating second and third class workers. Uh, Actually, this is what's going on in China with it's totally institutionalized there. And here, whether it's Uber creating uh, independent contractors or John Deere, where the company wanted to create a, a second and even a third tier of workers with, with different rights and different wages, or or here at the University of California, where I think that should also be added to the, to the mix of what's happening, where the lecturers were clearly second-class citizens in the university, and, and they were fighting to become at least a little more first-class citizens. So that's that's one thing that's happened. And I think that labor is pushing back against that. And frankly, that's an amazing tribute to the sense of solidarity mm-hmm. of the older, usually more well-established, sometimes, you know, white male who've been there, they're saying, yeah, we're going to go on strike so that the next generation doesn't have inferior conditions. That, that, that really says a lot. And that was one of the main, that was one of the main things that the John Deere, more than money, they want, they were looking to the future. We, we want to have, you know, good jobs and good, good conditions for the next generation. That's very important. But I want to say one more thing. And, and here, Susie, you're exhibit A on this, and I'm all in favor of it. There's a kind of cheerleading that's going on amongst the, the kind of, what do we call it, the chattering classes, the, the intellectuals, the whatever you want to call it, the sophisticates, and, and I'm part of that too. And, and it reminds me of 
when the New York intellectuals went down to Harlan County in 1932, you know, or or when Arthur Miller went over to to Flint and interviewed Walter Ruther when he was a, a undergraduate newsman at, at the University of Michigan, or or when um, member of people from the student SDS and others went down to the South in 1962 and three and four to help the civil rights movement. I mean, that's what's happening, and that's good. That's terrific, and I think it, uh, social movements they need a kind of what is the phrase. Uh, um, they need their organic intellectuals, but they need their, they need intellectuals too, you know. Or and the, you know whatever we have today, journalists and pundits, and and that's that's really remarkable. And I think that it has the effect of changing the conversation. What's possible? What was you know what's what's to happen? And so, uh, in in some ways, in some ways, I, I'm as impressed with that as I am with the actual number of workers who are on strike. And I, I should say, we're, we're both old enough, I certainly am, to remember there was a period when liberalism, and by the way, I'm writing a book about the economic policies of the Clinton administration right now, when liberalism was being defined as, you know, sans labor, without labor, that was, that was, uh, labor was considered a, a drag on the possibilities of a, of a new innovative capitalism. So I think you and I are exhibit A here, okay, on this, uh, on that question, all right? I think just to, you know, interject on that, absolutely, because we're so thrilled that we're seeing a labor movement come back. And as you say, because there's been, what, 50 years of an employer and government offensive against unions, most people around the world, I think, don't really understand how hampered the labor movement is in the United States because of labor law and how hard it is even to get a union, you know, as we see in case after case, like we saw in Bessemer and elsewhere. And you're absolutely right that uh, if we think back to the struggles of the 80s, you know, where divide and rule was in the 90s, you know, it was paramount. And, and this two-tier work system came in then. And it's surprising that, you know, that they're still trying to do it because, as you say, most of the things that you hear from the unions these days is they want to not, no longer have two-tier workforces. So, and that goes, I guess, back to what's happening in John Deere. That that, and is it the case that they're rejecting that? Oh yeah, oh yes, oh yeah. The 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 third. They they. I mean, the other thing was quite remarkable here. John Deere, these workers there, they rejected not once, they tw- not got twice. And then they finally accepted the third contract, which is much better. And they and it got it certainly got rid of the idea of a third tier, and it created a pathway to full industrial citizenship for those who are on on the second tier. And let me just say, I again, as I mentioned, I'm writing this book on the night on the 1990s. John Deere's sister company is Caterpillar, mm. and there was this incredibly brutal losing strike waged by the UAW for years in the 1990s against Caterpillar. And basically, I mean, they hung on and they kind of continued. They, they do that formal recognition there, but they lost a lot and they created two tiers and all sorts of, it was terrible. It was a terrible strike. It was isolated. It was sort of like the Illinois war zone, but no one was paying any attention to it. That was, thir- well, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Well, now John Deere, you know, that, that we're, we're past that. We're in a different moment. And that's terrific. But, but let me say about the UAW, the UAW is such a shadow of its former self. Mm-hmm. It hasn't organized the Japanese transplants, you know, or the other Korean or, or, or even German transplants. Um, uh, it hasn't organized the parts sector that was deunionized decades ago. And then putting us, well, they had this recent scandal in the leadership, which I, maybe is being resolved now. But the point is that a union movement needs to be able to, to be bigger and to have, you know, to organize more people. And, you know, just, just the other day, the, the reformers won in the Teamsters Union. 
Okay. Now, the fact that the Teamsters Union has a million workers, it means that with the, the new reform people there are going to be able to use this institutional power to, to get better contracts at UPS and then to try to organize Amazon. That's what the, the new leadership want is to do. We're going to organize Amazon. And in the 30s, the great thing about the union movement in the 30s was they organized not just new, lots of workers, but workers in the commanding heights of the economy. You know, the auto and steel and electrical, these were the commanding heights. Well, today, what's the commanding heights? It's Amazon, it's Walmart, it's it's Wall Street and Silicon Valley, of course. And we need to organize that. That, that needs to be, or at least put the, the fear of God into um, these employers and I'll come back on, on how I think that can be done in, the, in a second. Go ahead. Yeah, I do want to come back to that as well as to the, I guess, more advanced methods to deal with labor like we're seeing, you know, in the gig economy with precarious labor and Prop 22 and all of these other ways to try to not allow workers to be classified as workers so that they can be super exploited. And you mentioned the university sector, and that's gigantic as well, because whereas People think of a professoriate that's tenured and cushy and all the rest of it. Something like 75 to 80 percent of teaching right now is not done that way. And it's done by people literally on starvation wages without benefits. But I want to go, you know, just back to the UAW, I guess, for a second. And your your book on Walter Ruther. You see, you know, you talk about the 1930s and the way that labor exploded and you were starting to go there. And there was this shift in auto from relative quiescence to sit down strikes, you know, and pretty explosive militancy. You could say that by 1934, we had general strikes around the country. And by 1936 and 37, you have the GM sit down strike that I just mentioned in the victory of unionization. That was such a gigantic shift. And there's, of course, more things that impede that kind of thing today. But maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and how you see it in today's struggles. Well, luckily, current events can can surprise us. And <laughs> and while I think it's unlikely at this moment we're going to have a wave of sit-down strikes at Amazon, I don't want to say that's not possible. I think that that is possible. And and the that you know auto was a um, was a new industry. I mean, auto was in the '30s. Auto was no older as an industry than than Microsoft or, or any of the Silicon Valley firms. I mean, usually new firms, which then create a lot of opportunities, are, are often difficult to organize. But then after they become mature, they can be organized. Well, that's that's the case in Silicon Valley right now. And I would, I would say this. Take the figure of Henry Ford, for example, and compare him to, I don't know, Zuckerberg or something like that. Mm. Ford, when he burst on the scene in the just before the First World War, was a cultural uh, celebrity of the first order. I mean, both Lenin and Hitler was reading his book and, and everyone. <laughs> it's just amazing. He was a way beyond the, the celebrity value of any of the Silicon Valley stars. Kind of a whole new world was being, you know, the, the Silicon Valley's create, what do they say? You know, breaking things and creating a new world. Well, Henry Ford around the world, Fordism was a real word. You know, then of course, by the thirties, Henry Ford turns out, you know, he was authoritarian and people could see. And again, it was not just the workers who could see that. They could see it. But intellectuals and writers were saying, no, this Ford, all this that you think is a cornucopia of, of new things. In fact, it comes with this, uh, you know, the Charlie Chaplin on the assembly line. That was an important film, you know, for yeah. spreading that. That was a very important film. Well, today, 
I think the same thing is happening with people like Zuckerberg and others, and certainly Elon Musk, and not to mention what's it, Holmes? Holmes is on trial. People had this charisma about them, the capitalist charisma. That's all been devalued, and that that's important because it, the legitimacy of these institutions is called into question. These individuals, and that means if they're illegitimate, well, then you know we we're the ones who can do it. Really, it has a revolutionary. Sense of of ideas about it, if not a revolution itself. It's, I'm not saying we have a revolution, but the but the idea that we are more legitimate than them. I think that's a powerful, powerful idea, and I've seen that expressed in you know, well, like when the, the teachers, the lecturers, they said, "Who's you see? Our you see? You know, ours, ours." You know, and I think that's very powerful. Well, that takes us, I guess, to you know some of the efforts that we're seeing today, especially around Amazon. We saw that defeat in Bessemer, but it doesn't seem to quell the uh, militancy or the desire to keep going and trying once again. What you saw there is not just the power of union busting tactics that are borrowed from or learned from all of these legal firms that are very, very good at it, but you know, also the way that Amazon increased the number of the bargaining sector and, and of course, the conditions of the pandemic and all of those issues, and there is going to be a redo on that vote. I don't know how optimistic we should be about these redos, but nonetheless, I think it's indicative that the conditions for workers, and even as you started out, Nelson, by saying Amazon is paying more, they're giving them you know, all kinds of signing bonuses, you can walk in. I mean, it's just seemed extraordinary, but it's all without the union. And I really want you to talk a little bit about how you see Amazon's role. You were the person who wrote the most about Walmart and saw it as a template. And now we have, of course, the behemoth, even bigger than Walmart. I think, I don't know if it employs more people at this point, but it's Amazon. And so is it now the quintessential template (laughs) for everything? Well, Amazon and, and, and Walmart are very close. They're cousins. They're both the essential structure of both of those firms are having big distribution centers, uh, which then distribute the stuff through Walmart to the stores and, and, and Amazon directly to people. But let me say this about both. There's an element of truth in saying that the Wagner Act, that model of how workers will have a voice, is predicated upon a, a, an organization of capital which no longer exists. I mean, that is the idea of a single factory or even a single firm. And then you have a majority vote of the workers and then they'll bargain across a table with it. I think capital today is both with supply chains and with uh, its subcontracting and fissuring. It's more complex than that. And then also, of course, you know, with Amazon, there is no single vital factory that you can shut down, shut down the whole factory. With Amazon, they got 150 distribution centers. You try to organize one, they just close it down. But I do think there is another kind of organizing that's possible. And it is, and, and I think it's it's in league with what has happened in the past. That is, you need the state to threaten the business model of these firms. And I, I'm very heartened by the antitrust people that Biden has hired. Uh, they're terrific people, Lena Khan and others, Tim Wu. They look back to the late 19th century, and they say this these trusts, the problem with these trusts was not just that they raised prices for consumers, but they were anti-democratic barons, royalists, as FDR called them, and they should be broken up for that reason. So if the antitrust momentum gets going, and there's certainly a lot of popular support for that, it's not just losing mm-hmm. porn, then you say to the companies, look, you have to democratize. Either you're going to be broken up, 
or you're going to recognize the voice of your workers. That happened with A&P back in the 30s when they were trying to break up the chains. And I think that could ha- I think some sort of a, as it would be, a corporatist deal of that sort could take place today, in which you would say to Facebook, you'd say to Amazon, you'd say to Walmart, all these big firms, you're going to be broken up. You're going to be turned into a utility. The alternative is to recognize your employees as a kind of a democratic counterweight. And I think that that's not in the future, not right away, but I think that is the way it's going to happen. Or at least I would like to see it that way. Well, I think this is a really important point because, as you said at the outset, Nelson, this is the first time we have a president who actively is saying we need unions. And during the Amazon unionization effort, he all but said it. He didn't really come out and just say, okay, we're in favor of what the workers at Bessemer want, the union, but he more or less said that. And that was gigantic. You know, Biden was not the most left wing of the candidates, and he's turned out to be, you know, very progressive in terms of the packages that he's proposing and this union support. So you see, I guess, as the next front antitrust, a lot of people see the same thing that, you know, we have these gigantic new monopolies that need to be broken up. So I guess I just want you to talk a little bit more about that and the package and and the way that maybe that will help in the revitalization of the labor movement. Well, yeah, let me say this. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm not a, a small company uh, Democrat. I don't believe that you, if you divided Amazon or Facebook or something and made it in two or three, it'd still be a gigantic, oppressive company. I'm for using this as a lever with which to win other things. In, in the 30s, there was a moment, the AMP, which was the biggest chain store in, in the world then, country then, there was a very vigorous anti-chain store movement. And basically, a deal was cut, which was that the union said, well, okay, we will not support the anti-chain store movement if you recognize us. And they did. And so AMP for a generation and more was two generations, three generations, was, was a unionized firm. And, uh, and the other grocery stores as well. But let me say one more thing before we go. One of the problems, yes, it's great that Biden makes these noises about in favor of unions. But, but as you know, we cannot ignore the fact that we are in this crisis of democracy and there's yeah. an extraordinarily vigorous and big white nationalist movement out there, which, you know, we cannot ignore that. I think, and I don't think this is just my old lefty orthodoxy coming out, I think it's actually been shown that, let's go back to that John Deere strike. The John Deere strike takes place in Iowa, right? In, <laughs> it has become increasingly right-wing state. The governors, you know, did the local Republican Party denounce that strike? No, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. The National Republican Party tried to. Oh, they said, oh, the, the strike is depriving farmers of equipment. But the local Republicans, they knew this was some of their constituents, the, the governor and others. They didn't do it. So the a union movement, and especially, of course, a union movement in all the Walmarts or Amazons, which are spread all over Red America, that would have an, a tremendous impact on the, the politics of this country. And the fact is, you don't have to even explicitly talk about the, the politics of a union that might arise at Amazon. The very act of acting collectively is a progressive thing to do, you know, and, it, you know, it, it teaches you lessons about like vaccines, stuff like that. So that would really be the, the one thing that could drive a stake through the heart of this white nationalist resurgence that we now face. I'm so glad you said that, Nelson, because, of course, what we're seeing now is so much of the white working class is now Republican. 
And yet that doesn't mean that they've thrown out their values about, you know, wanting to have better work conditions and to have unions and everything else. So I think what you're suggesting is that you're going to see, at least locally and in these states, some reconfiguration of what the Republicans will at least emphasize right, in their political campaigns. And, and of course, that puts the Democrats on notice, too. So maybe that's a very good thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if West Virginia had the same union density it had 40 years ago when, when Joe Manchin started his political career, I mean, Manchin would be singing a very different tune. Yeah, he wouldn't possibly be able to be lecturing from a yacht that he doesn't like, you know, yeah. the entitlement mentality. Well, we've really run out of time, and I want to thank you so much. This is only a beginning, Nelson. I'm going to have you back because we're seeing, you know, we're going to be seeing more and more of these strikes, and you're the analyst to go to to figure out what it all means. Nelson is not just a labor historian, he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy at the University of California in Santa Barbara and writes lots and lots of books. His latest is Capitalism Contested, The New Deal and Its Legacy that just came out from the University of Pennsylvania. But he's also written on Ruther, Walter Ruther and State of the Union. And he's got a book coming out, I guess, in another year or two on Clinton and liberalism, which we're all going to look forward to. And I shouldn't uh, fail to mention that Nelson also wrote about Walmart as a template for 21st century capitalism, now supplanted by Amazon and, and others. But Nelson, Lichtenstein, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>